You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 167, Defending the Delaware. Following the Battle of Germantown, the British Army's position in Philadelphia seemed secure. About two weeks after the battle, General Howe evacuated Germantown and moved his army closer to Philadelphia. With 15,000 regulars and Hessians packed together behind entrenched lines that Washington's army could not hope to break. Although Washington would not attempt to force another attack on occupied Philadelphia, the Continentals could still create problems for the British as they had done when the British occupied Boston and New York, they prevented the occupiers from roaming the rural areas around the city to collect food, forage, and other supplies. In both Boston and New York, the Navy could make up for this loss by shipping in supplies from elsewhere. But in October 1777, the British Army in Philadelphia and the British Navy still gathering at the mouth of the Delaware River could not link up with one another. Since the outbreak of war, the Americans had fortified their defenses on the Delaware River to prevent a naval attack. The lower part of the river was much wider, making it more difficult to defend. But once a ship travels upriver north of the Delaware-Pennsylvania border, the river narrows, making larger sailing ships less maneuverable the Americans set up a series of forts and river defenses that would prevent the approach of any fleet to Philadelphia. The first spot was at Billingsport, which was on the New Jersey side of the river, several miles south of Philadelphia. It's actually near where the southern border of Philadelphia is now, but Philadelphia was much smaller in the 1770s. At that point, the river narrowed, and there was a slight bend making it difficult for ships to navigate. So, to make it even more difficult, the Americans sank several chevaux de frises into the river. A chevaux de frise is basically a tree with all of its branches removed. The tip is sharpened and usually covered with an iron tip to make it into a giant spear. The other end is then attached to a big box of rocks and sunk into the river. Any wooden sailing ship that ran into this would be punctured and likely would sink. Since the weapons were beneath the water, a ship needed a pilot who knew where they were to maneuver around them and get upriver. Also, the ships would have to sail near the New Jersey side of the river to get past this. The Americans erected a fort there at Billingsport to fire on any ships trying to pass without permission. If the fleet got past this first defense, it next had to move a few miles upriver to get past Forts Mercer and Mifflin. 
Again, the Americans sunk chevaux de frises into the river and put forts, in this case, on both sides of the river. Fort Mercer sat on the New Jersey side at the Red Bank Plantation. The land was owned by a local Quaker named James Whittle. Generally, Quakers were considered Tories, but very often they just didn't support actively either side. Mostly, they just tried to stay out of the war as pacifists. James's wife, Anne, had a brother who was actually serving in the Continental Congress, so the Whittles were not particularly hostile to the Patriot cause. In any event, the government set up a fort on their land right next to their house. The purpose of the fort was to house cannons that would prevent any hostile ships from moving upriver. On the Pennsylvania side of the river, the Americans established Fort Mifflin. This was actually on an island known as Mud Island, which was separated from the mainland by a smaller branch of the river. Fort Mifflin also mounted cannons to fire on ships, thus subjecting any enemy fleet to a deadly crossfire from both forts if they attempted to move upriver while avoiding the chevaux de frise in the river itself. If that was not enough, the Americans also built a fleet of small gunboats. These were basically large rowboats with a cannon or two mounted on the bow or stern. The boats could hide in the shallows behind Mud Island and row out when needed. Because large sailing ships could not maneuver easily in this area, these smaller ships could row out, fire a shot, and then row away again before the enemy could get in place to return fire. There were also a few Continental Navy ships to supplement this fleet of gunboats. Finally, the Pennsylvania Navy had constructed a series of fire rafts. These were, what they sound like, basically large rafts that would be set on fire and floated down toward the enemy fleet in hopes of causing some damage or chaos. The British Navy had ships that had made advances up the river since the outbreak of the war. So they were well aware of these defenses and opted not to take them on directly. That was one reason why the British opted not to sail up the Delaware for Howe's attack on Philadelphia, but instead spent many weeks sailing down to the Chesapeake in order to land at Head of Elk, Maryland. Of course, as I said, these defenses did not really begin until one got into Pennsylvania. So historians have questioned for years why the British fleet didn't sail up simply to Wilmington, Delaware or so, and disembark the army there and then march to Philadelphia. If they'd done that, the army would have landed weeks earlier and at a spot much closer to Philadelphia than their landing in Maryland. But for whatever reason, they did land in Maryland. After Admiral Howe unloaded the army at the Chesapeake, he had no trouble sailing his fleet back out of the bay and then up the Delaware River to Wilmington by early October. But to go any further, he was going to have to deal with the American defenses. One of the British officers tasked with getting past these defenses was John Montresor. Captain Montresor was quite familiar with the defenses because he had been responsible for designing and building Fort Mifflin before the war. Montresor is an interesting character who probably deserves more of an introduction. He was present for most of the important events of the first part of the war. Born at Gibraltar, Montresor was the son of Colonel James Montresor, who was also a military engineer. Young John grew up following his father around the world. 
He did spend four or five years at school in London, but mostly grew up living at various military outposts. In 1754, at 18 years old, Ensign Montresor traveled to America with his father. He served on the Braddock Campaign, along with men like Thomas Gage and Charles Lee, and a colonial officer named George Washington, as the British attempted to capture Fort Duquesne in what is today Pittsburgh. Montresor was wounded in that battle and also got a promotion to lieutenant. He received a commission as an engineer and participated in the sieges of Louisbourg and Quebec during the French and Indian War. Montresor also led a relief force to Fort Detroit during Pontiac's Rebellion. He also designed and oversaw the construction of fortifications at Fort Niagara and Fort Erie. When the French and Indian War ended, Captain Montresor remained in America, living in New York. He bought an island in the East River, he did survey work, and constructed various military fortifications in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and the Bahamas. And as I said, among these was a fort on Mud Island in the Delaware River, where they began design and construction in 1771 to provide defenses for Philadelphia. When the war began in 1775, Montresor was in Boston. He participated in the relief force that rescued British regulars returning from Concord. The following year, he was part of the invasion of New York and the Battle of Long Island. Montresor met Continental Captain Nathan Hale the night before Hale was hanged, and Montresor went on to participate in the fight over New Jersey in early 1777. In the Philadelphia campaign, Captain Montresor accompanied General Howe in landing at Head of Elk. Some attribute Montresor's description of the Delaware River defenses as convincing General Howe to land at the Chesapeake instead. Montresor, as I said, participated in the Philadelphia campaign, including the Battle of Brandywine, and after the British took Philadelphia, Montresor was tasked with destroying the Delaware River defenses that he had helped to build. Now, traditionally, the Delaware River had not had real defenses. When William Penn founded the city of Philadelphia, he was decidedly anti-military and wanted to trust God for the city's defense. His largely Quaker legislature continued to hold that position. It was not until 1771 or 72 that the colony, largely due to the support of Benjamin Franklin, began to build the defenses on Mud Island that became known as Fort Mifflin. As I said, they received the help of British Captain Montresor, who helped design and construct the fort, but after that it was manned by the colonists and became a Patriot-controlled fort upon the outbreak of war. The British first tested American defenses in May 1776, when two British Navy ships, the Roebuck and the Liverpool, attempted to sail up the Delaware River. Their encounter with Patriot gunships and a larger ship, the Reprisal, under Captain Lambert Wicks, forced them to withdraw. For the next year, the British ships would linger around the Delaware Bay, attempting to capture ships entering or leaving the river, but they did not venture up toward the city again, even while General Howe's army was threatening the city from New Jersey in late 1776. The Americans attempted to beef up the river defenses in 1777. The ranking Continental Navy officer on the river was John Barry. 
Pennsylvania also had its own navy under the command of John Hazelwood. The Continental Congress gave overall command to Hazelwood, who also commanded the Continental ships on the river, leaving Barry with little to command himself. Pennsylvania gave Hazelwood the rank of Commodore. Now, some sources I've read say that he received an equivalent rank in the Continental Navy, but I can't find any record of that. Hazelwood was an English-born merchant who had moved to Philadelphia as a young man. He was serving as a captain of Philadelphia merchant vessels by the mid-1750s. As early as July 1775, he was working with the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety to begin developing the Delaware River defenses. Hazelwood, however, did not have a free hand to create defenses however he liked. He had to work with varied and sometimes conflicting interests between the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety, the Continental Congress, the Continental Navy, the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware Militia, and the Continental Army. Within all those groups, there were different individuals who all seemed to operate on their own, each with different priorities and opinions on the best way to defend the river. When Tadeusz Kosciuszko first arrived in America in late 1776, the engineer began work on the fort at Billingsport. He did this before Congress gave him a commission, and before he finished work on the fort, the Continental Congress granted his commission and sent him off to Fort Ticonderoga. Over the summer of 1777, French officer Philippe de Cordray also went to Billingsport to consult on the defenses there. De Cordray thought the Billingsport location was much better suited to defense than the other defenses at Forts Mercer and Mifflin further upriver. He found that the river was narrower at Billingsport and that a floating battery on a shallow area behind an island on the other side of the river could provide good supporting fire. While Ducoudray liked the location, the fort itself was entirely inadequate. Ducoudray wanted 2,000 laborers to build up defensive walls and a total of 30 cannon along with artillery crews and a garrison to defend the fort itself against a land assault. By this time, however, Washington was more concerned about the British landing and army and did not want to pour more resources into building up Fort Billingsport. Instead, he encouraged the use of the primary defenses already established at Forts Mifflin and Mercer. On September 27th, the day after the British Army first marched into Philadelphia, the Continental Navy struck at the city. The Continental Navy ships Delaware and the Fly, as well as the Pennsylvania ship the Montgomery and some smaller gunboats, sailed up the Delaware River to Philadelphia. Captain Charles Alexander sought to deliver a warning note to the British. Earlier that day, Commodore Hazelwood had instructed Alexander to deliver the note if he saw the British constructing any batteries along the river. The warning said that unless the British would cease and desist, the Americans would fire on them. Now, I'm not sure why Hazelwood felt that such a warning was necessary in the middle of a war, but it would probably had to do with his concern over firing on Philadelphia and perhaps wounding or killing innocent civilians. As Captain Alexander approached the Philadelphia wharf, the newly installed British batteries opened fire on his fleet. A brief firefight ensued, and most of the American fleet returned downstream to Fort Mifflin. The largest ship, however, the Delaware, 
ran aground under heavy British artillery fire. British cannons took out the mainmast, wounded six of the crew, and killed one. Captain Alexander was forced to surrender along with his ship. He and his crew were taken prisoner, and his officers were imprisoned in Independence Hall, from which they would escape several months later. The capture of the Delaware also gave the British a 28-gun frigate that was upriver from the American defenses. Two other American ships, the Effington and the Washington, under the commands of John Barry and Thomas Reed, had sailed upriver to Burlington, New Jersey, the day before the British took Philadelphia. Now, both of these ships were even larger than the Delaware, but had still been under construction and did not have the armaments to go into battle. The Americans feared that the British might sail up and capture both of these ships as well. If the British were able to assemble a small fleet of ships upriver from the American defenses, and that fleet worked in concert with the British fleet downriver, it could make the American defenses much more difficult. The British, however, did not go after the other ships and were content to hold Philadelphia and await the British fleet. The fear of these other ships being captured, however, was a big source of concern for the American leadership. It had taken the British Navy more than a month to complete its deployment at Head of Elk in the Chesapeake and then sail back around to the Delaware Bay and make its way upriver. So it was by early October 1777, about the same time the Continental Army was attacking the British at Germantown, that American observers were reporting dozens of British naval vessels entering the Delaware Bay and making their way upriver. The British made their way up to Newcastle, Delaware and Chester, Pennsylvania with little resistance. The first real threat to the fleet came at Fort Billingsport. There, as I said, the Americans had sunk several lines of chevaux de frise into the river and maintained the fort to fire on any vessel trying to work its way around them. Before assaulting the fort, Admiral Howe sent a message to Commodore Hazelwood calling on him to surrender his fleet. I don't know if Howe seriously thought there was a real chance that the Americans would surrender without a shot fired, but I guess he figured it was worth asking. Hazelwood, of course, declined the offer of surrender and continued his preparations for battle. About this same time, Commodore Barry received a more secretive offer. A messenger, whose identity was never made known, met with Barry aboard the Effington, which was still hiding up north of Philadelphia. The messenger conveyed a British offer of 15,000 guineas to Barry if he sailed down to the Delaware and surrendered his ship. Further, Barry received an offer of a commission in the British Navy and could continue to command the Effington in His Majesty's service. Conjecture is that the offer was delivered by one of Barry's in-laws, several of whom were known Tories. These relatives were by this time working for the British in Philadelphia. As Barry later told the story, he lost his temper and ordered the man off of his ship. At the same time, Admiral Howe assumed his overtures would be rejected and continued planning and preparations to retake the river by force. Howe conferred with Captain Andrew Hammond of the Roebuck. Hammond had been trolling the waters of the Lower Delaware for several years and was probably the naval officer most familiar with the current state of American defenses. Hammond told Howe that he would be able to work his way past the Chevaux de Frise in the river if Howe could take out Fort Billingsport and prevent any artillery harassment from that location. 
Until that was clear, Admiral Howe kept the bulk of his fleet further downriver, avoiding direct engagement. On October 2nd, the Navy assisted two regiments of regulars under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Sterling across the Delaware River to the New Jersey side. Sterling had been tasked with the capture of Fort Billingsport. By October, there were very few Americans left to defend the fort. General Washington had recalled almost all troops in the area to join his army in Pennsylvania, first for the land defense of Philadelphia and then for the attack at Germantown. As a result, there were only a couple of hundred militia at the fort for its defense. Further, the fort had never implemented the defenses recommended by General Ducordray. Its walls and entrenchments had not been completed and would not stand up to much of a land assault. The fort commander, Pennsylvania Militia Colonel William Bradford, deployed a cannon and several dozen militia to confront the advancing regulars in order to delay the attack on the fort. He used what time he had to evacuate as many guns and supplies as he could, moving them on boats to the Pennsylvania side of the river. He spiked the cannons that he could not transport and set fire to the fort and all of its buildings. By the time Sterling's regulars arrived a few hours later, Billingsport was an abandoned burning ruin. The British removal of the fort had succeeded in eliminating the threat of cannon fire from Fort Billingsport. Captain Hammond then set about removing the Chateau de Frise from the river and creating a path for the British Navy. The Americans floated some fire rafts down the river at night in an attempt to force the British to withdraw, but the British were able to prevent the fire rafts from doing any harm, and within a few days they had cut a hole in the American underwater defenses. They then moved six ships north of Billingsport. The next barrier separating them from Philadelphia was the defenses at Forts Mifflin and Mercer. And we'll get to that next week when we cover, guess what? The Battles of Fort Mifflin and Mercer. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. 
My continued thanks to Trey Nance and George Davis for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon, as well as all of my other continuing supporters. Thanks also to Brian Locke for another one-time contribution via Zelle. Remember, the podcast can accept contributions via PayPal, Zelle, Venmo, and Pop Money. Anything you can do to help support the show is, of course, greatly appreciated. I also want to send my best wishes to friend of the show, Kurt Avard, this week. Kurt's new historical novel, First Do No Harm, releases this week on September 25th, 2020. The story takes place in 17th century Vienna during a plague epidemic. I wish Kurt well on his project and hope that the book gets the attention that it deserves. Later this week, I will be releasing another special episode, which is an interview with the author recorded shortly before the release of his book. This week's episode, though, covered the British attempts to clear the Delaware River, the British effort to take Philadelphia by land and then clear the water access to the city was a rather unconventional approach. It meant that all those river defenses did not directly play a role in defending Philadelphia. Although the defenses did not stand up to a British assault, they did have a valuable benefit on the overall war effort. The mere presence of those defenses are part of the reason why General Howe opted to waste several weeks sailing down to the Chesapeake and then marching up by land. This delayed the capture of Philadelphia by many weeks, and those precious weeks could have resulted in General Howe sending reinforcements north to help General Burgoyne at Saratoga. Instead, Howe was actually forcing General Clinton to send more reinforcements from New York down to Philadelphia, thus hobbling Clinton's meager efforts to provide a distraction to help Burgoyne. As I said in the main show, Fort Billingsport was the first line of defense on the Delaware River approach to Philadelphia. A fun bit of trivia is that the land where Fort Billingsport sat was the first land ever purchased by the United States government. On July 5, 1776, the day after approving the Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress approved the purchase of 96 acres of land where Fort Billingsport was to be built. The fort, though, never got built to specifications that would allow it to withstand a land attack. That was why it was abandoned without much of a fight when the British deployed against it. After the British took the fort, they built a small redoubt on the site since the Americans had destroyed the fort before abandoning it. The British, in turn, abandoned their redoubt when they evacuated Philadelphia the following year. After that, the Americans regained control, but never bothered to build up the defenses into a proper fort again. They retained a small garrison at the redoubt for the remainder of the war. Since Philadelphia never again became a target, it did not come into relevance again. They finally abandoned the fort entirely in 1781 during the Yorktown campaign. Now, the U.S. government retained the land and used it as a military training center during the War of 1812, and after that the fort was again abandoned. The land was sold to private parties finally in 1834. Today there's a park where Fort Billingsport once stood. However, none of the original structures remain. There's just a small marker. 
and most of the property became part of an oil refinery originally built by Standard Oil. So even though Fort Billingsport does not stand, the delays caused by the Delaware defenses did impact the course of the war. My book recommendation this week is The Pennsylvania Navy, The Defense of the Delaware, 1775-1781, by John W. Jackson. As I noted in the main show, there were competing interests between the Continentals, the militia, and the state army and navy. The state of Pennsylvania actually had its own navy, commanded by Commodore Hazelwood. This book talks about the Navy's six-year existence, with a considerable portion of the book devoted to the events of 1777. It also talks about the Continental Navy and the forts along the Delaware, including a fair amount of detail on Fort Billingsport. The book itself was published in 1974. It's about 350 pages, plus another 150 pages of appendices, notes, and index. It's extremely well-researched and detailed. The author, John Jackson, was a former ad executive who spent most of his later years exploring his passion for the American Revolution, particularly in the Philadelphia area. He also served as chairman of the Germantown Historical Society and wrote several great books in addition to the Pennsylvania Navy about various topics related to the war. So, if you want to read more about today's topic, The Pennsylvania Navy by John Jackson is a good option. My online recommendation this week is a free ebook on archive.org. It is called Defenses of Philadelphia in 1777 by Worthington Chauncey Ford. This is a wonderful compilation of primary sources including correspondence, journals, and other writings from the time. It covers the preparation and planning before the British invasion, as well as actions taken during the invasion. The book itself was published in 1897, but as I said, all of the contents of the book come from original writings written in 1777. It is available as an ebook, free for download in multiple formats. If you go to search for the title on archive.org, note that the author spells defenses in Defenses of Philadelphia with a C rather than the modern current American spelling using an S in defense. Or you can simply use the direct link to the book as posted on my website and blog. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.